0: Hey, everyone. Technically, you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson, and it's November 13th. One of history's very many Bloody Sundays took place on this day in 1887. There are a lot of events that have been named Bloody Sunday, and this one took place in Trafalgar Square in London. In the late 19th century, Trafalgar Square had become a common gathering place for protesters in London. In particular, the working poor were protesting against exploitation and financial hardship. These protesters were often supported by middle-class socialists. And then over the summer of 1887, the square had also become home to a large number of unemployed people, many of them with nowhere else to go. Some slept in the square and washed themselves in its fountains, and newspapers were drawing a lot of attention to the situation. Authorities regarded this sort of encampment in the square as an embarrassment, and starting on October 17th of that year, police regularly tried to clear all the people out. But little was done to address the circumstances that had led to these people being there in the first place. So many of these evictions from the square became violent, but the people having nowhere else to go and it having become such a focal point for protests, people would gather there again. As attention grew to this cycle, the protest grew also, and a lot was going on in these protests and demonstrations. There were a lot of different people involved who had their own goals and objectives. There were socialists and anarchists and trade unionists. And some of the more specific political ideas that were brought up in these demonstrations included Irish home rule and England's treatment of Ireland, in addition to all the other things we've already been talking about. So on November 8th of 1887, a notice was posted to ban meetings in Trafalgar Square. It was issued by Charles Warren, who was the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. It said, in part, until further intimation, no public meetings will be allowed to assemble in Trafalgar Square, nor will speeches be allowed to be delivered therein, and well-disposed persons are hereby cautioned and requested to abstain from joining or attending any meeting or assemblage this notification also made it clear that precautions were going to be taken to prevent such assemblies and that disturbances would be suppressed. That was the actual word that was used, suppressed. So now, in addition to the poor people and the socialists and the trade unionists and all of these other people, there were now also radicals who thought the key issue at play here was the freedom of speech. In defiance of this ban, a plan was formed to march on Trafalgar Square in protest And the plan also included speeches and a demonstration that was planned once they arrived. That was to happen on November 13th of 1887. But what happened instead was that the police charged the protesters. There were 1,500 police, including mounted officers, and there were hundreds of volunteers there as special constables. The military was there too, including infantry and cavalry, and most of these people were armed with police truncheons although the military units also had things like bayonets. A few protesters were killed in this. Most sources say either two or three, and at least 200 were injured in violence that went on all day. There were also many arrests of the leaders of the demonstrations. Some of the police in the military were injured as well, but there were far, far more injuries among the protesters. A big part of the response to this event was outrage against the police brutality that had happened and the people who were killed were viewed as martyrs. The authorities, though, felt that the use of force had been appropriate and some of the more conservative papers framed this as a much-needed cleanup of lawless agitators. A week later, on November 20th, at a subsequent protest, a man named Alfred Linnell fell and was trampled by a horse and killed. His death was similarly condemned in the same way that the police brutality had been. The idea was that an exploitive and inhumane system had caused this innocent man's death. Thanks to Christopher Osciotis for his research work on today's podcast and to Casey P. Grimm and Chandler Mays for all their audio work on the show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts, and you can tune in tomorrow for a media milestone.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where we one day ship nugs of history straight to your brain through your ear hole. The day was November 13th, 1906. Industrial designer Eva Zeisel was born in Budapest, Hungary. She's best known for her tableware. Eva was born Eva Amalia Streaker to Laura Polanyi Streaker and Alexander Streaker. Her mother was a historian, feminist, and activist, and her father owned a textile factory. Eva enrolled in the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Budapest when she was 17 years old, with the intent of studying painting. But her mother urged her to learn a practical trade, and she decided to become a ceramist. She dropped out of the academy after three semesters and began an apprenticeship with Jakob Karapanczyk. Karapanczyk was a member of the Hungarian guild of chimney sweeps, oven makers, roof towers, well diggers, and potters. Eva soon graduated as a journeyman, or a trained worker, and started to create her own pottery. On a trip to Paris in 1925, she visited the International Exhibition of Modern Decorative and Industrial Arts and became familiar with the Bauhaus, the international style of architecture, and other modernist designs. Eva's work was exhibited at local trade fairs, and Hungarian ceramic manufacturers took notice of her art and commissioned collections. In 1926, her work won an honorable mention at the Philadelphia sesquicentennial. At this point, Eva was working as a designer in the Kiesbester factory in Budapest, creating designs for decorative art objects. She wasn't in that job long before her desire to travel and learn new skills took her to Hamburg, Germany, and Schramberg, Germany, where she worked at Schramberger Majolica Fabric, designing tableware. There, she honed her industrial design expertise to create art deco designs that were both beautiful and functional, and were able to be mass-produced successfully. Eva's work merged sleek, modern designs with more lyrical classic shapes. In 1930, Eva moved to Berlin, where she worked as a freelance designer for several companies. After two years of immersing herself in Berlin's art scenes, she ended up moving again, this time to the Soviet Union. She worked at the Lomonosov factory in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, designing tableware that was rooted in modernism and 18th-century Russian designs. By 1934, she had moved to Moscow to work at the Dolyeva porcelain factory, and soon she became the artistic director of the Russian Republic's China and glass industry. But in 1936, Eva was falsely accused of plotting to kill Stalin. She was arrested in May and imprisoned, where she was subjected to brainwashing and torture. She spent most of that time in solitary confinement until she was released in September of 1937. When she got out of prison, she went to Vienna, only to leave in March of 1938 as the Nazis arrived. From there, she moved to England and married Hans Zeisel. The couple moved to the U.S., where Eva would spend the rest of her life as a designer and writer. In 1939, she began teaching at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. She had two children, Jean in 1940 and John in 1944. Sears, Roebuck & Company was one of the first companies to commission her work in the U.S. Other companies that commissioned work from Zeisel were Hall China, Red Wing China, Castleton China, and Western Stoneware. She even designed the Eva Zeisel Resilient Chair. Seisel continued designing ceramics, furniture, glassware, and other objects until her death in 2011. Her work is in the permanent collections of the British Museum, the Brooklyn Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and many other institutions. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can keep up with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. You can also email us at thisday at Thanks again for listening. We'll see you same place tomorrow.